Good morning. Thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Chris Johnson. I'm the Freeman Chair in China Studies uh, here at CSIS. Um, today we're doing the uh, third and last of our three-part series on Xi Jinping's uh, three tough battles. And I think in some ways, at least as far as I'm concerned, uh, we've uh, perhaps saved the best for last or certainly the most relevant given uh, what's going on here uh, in town in the last few days. We're going to try really hard not to make this about trade war, <laughs> but to stay very focused on the topic which is financial de-risking. And with that, um, we're very honored here at CSIS to have with us Andrew Polk and Jean Ma. Um, Andrew is the co-founder and head of economic research at Trivium China, a Beijing-based strategic advisory firm. Uh, before founding Trivium, Andrew was the China director at Medley Global Advisors, where he advised asset managers and hedge funds on developments in China's economy and financial markets. Previously, he was uh, the resident China economist at the Conference Board's China Center, where he conducted economic analysis on the Chinese economy for corporate clients. He's the co-author of The Long Soft Fall in Chinese Growth and maintains a deep network of professional contacts in the official academic and business communities in China, built over a decade of living in China and working on China issues. Other research positions he has held including, include stints at the Institute of International Finance and U.S. Treasury. He holds an MA in Economics and International Relations from Johns Hopkins Size. And let me just say that uh, I read Trivium every day and I encourage all of you to please uh, do so as well. It's a fantastic resource. Uh, Jean uh, Ma is the head of the China Research at uh, IIF. IIF currently has 30 Chinese members, including banks, brokers, asset managers, and insurance companies. Prior to coming to IIF, Jean was the China economist and strategist at Tudor Investment, a global macro hedge fund. He has also worked at ISI Group, uh, now Evercore ISI, Citic Securities in Beijing, and China's Ministry of Finance. Gene uh, has been visiting professor at the University of Illinois and George Washington University, and he graduated from Beida and Cornell University. So we're very honored to have these two fine gentlemen, and please join me in welcoming uh, Andrew Polk to the stage. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris, uh, for having me. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, it's great to be in, in DC. Um, I just have to quickly start by saying, since yesterday was Mother's Day and I was traveling, happy Mother's Day to my mom and my wife, who <laughs> I know are watching the live feeds. So thanks uh, for being great moms. And with that, we can get into the, the uh, world of China's, Chinese financial risk. As Chris said, there's a lot of things, obviously, that are going on between US China, but um, but there are so many things happening on the domestic regulatory front that really Chinese regulators are so much more focused on. Uh, the, the U.S. trade stuff matters, and they are focused on that, but it's much more of an irritant, really, than what they're trying to do domestically. And so this is all, to understand the Chinese policy space, all very important stuff. So I'm just going to go over three kind of quick areas. Uh, the numbers in terms of China's financial um, de-risking and and deleveraging um, the the policy and the personnel. Do you know how I can get this to stop? There we go. So quick points here. Um, overall, China has actually made significant initial gains in de-risking the financial 
sector. Um, you know, people are focused on deleveraging and everyone says they're not deleveraging yet, which is true, but they have made significant initial gains that I think we need to, to focus on and acknowledge. But true deleveraging will mean a sustained push over the medium term, several years here. So we've basically kicked things off in 2017 and we'll see if they continue to push forward. All signs point to them continuing to be very intense on the regulatory front to crack down on leverage and eventually start some actual, actual deleveraging. Uh, so far, we, the crackdown hasn't affected the real economy, so that's a positive. That may start to change. Growth is slowing, and then, especially in the second half of this year, we expect a slower growing economy, so then the regulators will have some hard choices to make as to whether they want to continue to stay tight. Uh, the, they call this the regulatory regime over finance, the financial regulatory storm, and it's been impressive both for its intensity and its broadness. Um, so, uh, I think with the last piece is, that I'll talk about is the financial, the retooling of the financial regulatory structure, which is also an important part of this. But the, the last point there is key. We're not out of the woods yet. We need to see them uh, continue to push on this front, uh, on the financial de-risking front, if they want to continue to consolidate the gains going forward. So the place where the Chinese policymakers have started is in the most speculative part of the banking system. So again, everyone sees the word deleveraging, and we have to understand that the Chinese regulators, A, don't really mean deleveraging right now. They mean slowing the pace of leverage growth. You've got to crawl before you can walk. So what they've done is they've actually quite, I think, correctly started by focusing on the most speculative part of the banking system, which is the interbank market. So this chart on the right shows that blue line across the top shows regular lending by banks. That's been fairly steady over the past several years. The green line, though, is the overall asset growth in the banking system. And you can see over the past two years, growth in overall assets of the banking system has re reduced dramatically. So why is that? Basically, it's because banks have stopped growing their assets by lending to each other. So over the past several years, one of the ways that banks started making money since the economy wasn't doing well was by lending to each other, buying each other's bonds in the interbank market, and basically financial doing, engaging in financial engineering. The regulator's argument was none of that's really financing real economic growth. It wasn't on the way up when it was getting um, spun up in terms of growth in the interbank market. So as we reduce growth in the interbank market, it shouldn't hurt the real economy. And so far that's been true as shown in the slide before. But this, this red line shows you the, the growth of lending and borrowing between banks, right? So you can see that it very much mirrors that green line in the chart before. And so what we can see is the reason that overall bank asset growth has slowed is because banks have stopped growing their assets by lending to each other, thanks to the tighter regulatory environment. One key point that I like to tell people and really harp on when we're talking about China's financial system is everyone thinks about China's, they talk about Chinese banking system as this big monolithic thing. But really, if you want to understand China's banking system, you really have to zero in on different elements of the banking system. So if you break down China's banking system by type, you've got basically the big SOE banks and the policy banks, and those banks make up 50% of system assets. That's eight institutions. So those institutions, again, state-owned or policy banks, are explicitly state-backed, and they're quite conservative. You can see the state-owned banks are the, the line at the bottom. They've been growing their assets by about 
in the single digits over the past few years. The banks that have really been out of control are the smaller part of the banking system. The joint stock banks, which make up 18% of the system, and the city commercial banks, which make up 13, 12% of the system. So you can see these lines here, the, the city commercial banks at the top, joint stock banks in the middle, their asset growth has slowed dramatically because the regulators have focused in on those banks um, as being the most speculative, engaging in the most speculative activity. And part of the reason they've had to do this is because they're not getting deposits from average Chinese citizens. So they've had to um, grow their assets by borrowing from other banks and lending to other banks. Again, spinning up this sort of financial engineering that the regulators saw and said, this doesn't make any sense. It's not helping the economy, so we'll unwind it. And you can see, again, this is kind of to make the point that that A, um, the financial de-risking, if you look at the numbers, has, again, made significant success initially, but B, that they focused in on the right parts of the system. So what all this together means is that China's banking system has actually deleveraged. So it's gone from a, just from a, a high of 307% of GDP now to just under 300%, so 299% of GDP. So what the Chinese regulators have done when they're thinking about deleveraging, they focused in specifically on the banks, said let's deleverage the financial system, and then we'll move on to the rest of the system. And we actually just got the PBOC, the first quarter uh, monetary policy report from the PBOC on month, or over the weekend, and it showed that this deleveraging the financial system is starting to filter in into overall macro leverage. So overall macro leverage grew just shy of three, per, three percentage points last year, up to 250% of GDP according to the official numbers. That's compared to a growth of 13 percentage points on average from 2012 to 2016. So the point being that even though China's economy is not deleveraging, it's leveraging much more slowly. Again, you have to walk before you can crawl, and so they've made significant steps. Why has this happened? A few key points here. One, it shows what happens with the clear signal from the top. We'll get into some of the policymakers in a minute, but Xi Jinping in late 2016 designated financial risk as a national security risk. Once he did that, lo and behold, everybody got in line and started focusing on the banking system. The second thing that's hugely important here is he's gotten the CCDI involved. CCDI is, are the discipline inspectors. So the discipline inspectors are now going with the banking regulators to look at these banks and making sure the regulators are getting the job done. Once the discipline inspectors, inspectors get involved, then behavior changes. And again, this is one reason why you've seen such significant progress in the, in the past year and a half. Now there's an ongoing concern of over-implementation, so we've seen recently um, a couple of examples of discipline inspectors getting involved and things have gone a little haywire. So you look at the, the shift from coal-powered gas, or, or coal-powered heat to gas-powered heat over the winter, and basically you got the signal from the top, everybody needs to switch to gas. Well, there wasn't enough gas supply, and so these local cadres went out and said, well, I've got to hit my targets, so they shut down factories, they reduced supply to homes, and people were literally left out in the cold, and businesses had to stop functioning. That kit, so the, the point is that they, were, they had this target, the, CC, the discipline inspectors were on their back, and so they were just trying to hit the targets, damn the consequences. That could happen in the financial sector, so we do need to be careful, and I guess the point here is we don't want to imbue or um, project some sort of um, 
some supernatural ability onto the regulators because we can, we've seen in other policy areas where this whole mix has, has gone awry. So again, that's just sort of the numbers. You see the, ma the macro leverage growing more slowly, but the key focus of the initial policy push was on the banking system itself. They've done a lot of good work there. So where has policy been focused over the past year and a half? There's a bunch of different areas that have, have, where the regulators have really pushed. First, the idea, if you talk to financial regulators in, in particular, but Chinese regulators writ large, is that they just want to simply enforce the existing rules better. They don't want to write a bunch of new rules and layer things on top of the system. They just want to say, for example, for banks, you're only allowed to invest your wealth management products in certain types of assets. Banks knew that. It's been the, rules for, the rule for years, but they were going around it anyway. So regulators have come in and said, we're going to start inspecting and making sure that you're abiding by the rules. So that's one thing they've done. The second, as I mentioned, is get the discipline enforcers involved. That's, that's made a huge difference. The third, in which brings in the discipline inspectors as, as well, is that they've really shifted to institutional and personal responsibility. So the fines for banks being, you know, engaging in malfeasance have gone up dramatically. There's almost a record fine almost every day. And individuals have gone to jail, been removed, been fined themselves. And again, that's how you change behavior in any system, but especially China's system, you start holding people accountable. So that's been a big element of this push as well. They've also been engaged in both preventative measures and contingency plans. And this is something that I think people don't um, well is not well understood. So preventative measures is all this stuff I'm talking about, trying to reduce growth in, in the most speculative assets in the banking system and thus the macro leverage picture writ large. But the, the contingency plans are things like updating the bankruptcy law. Why would you, the, excuse me, specifically the bank bankruptcy law. Why would you update the rules around bank bankruptcy if you didn't expect to have to use it sometime soon? They're also layering in uh, net, uh, a system where they net out um, liabilities, which means that basically if one bank goes down, instead of trying to figure out who that bank owes or how much that bank owes to every different institution, they net out one big amount and that bank pays, pays its major lenders that amount and it makes the bankruptcy system much more uh, simple and straightforward. So they're trying to get in, in tune with international practice there. Again, the way I read it, they are preparing to have to use some of these functions to take banks through bankruptcy as a part of this deleveraging process. Other things that we're looking forward to that are kind of happening this year that will, on the regulatory front, are this new um, rule on asset management. So those of you who are familiar with the Chinese banking system or Chinese economy writ large um, will know that wealth management products are a big part of the shadow banking system and the overall leverage situation in China. So they have in implemented new rules over how you can uh, create these wealth management products. It's the asset management rule. It's already making huge waves among banks and other asset managers in China. They're reducing their uh, wealth management product creation both to end consumers and to other, other banks, having a big impact. And this is actually, I think this is the most wide-ranging regulation that's come out in 2018. It's going to have a big effect. And it's, it's clear that, you know, we were talking just before we came out here that these things just coming out in 2018, to me, show that the regulators are still clearly focused here. There's a sort of a debate as to whether China's going to back off on this program now that they've kind of been focused on it for 15 months. These new rules tell, 
say to me that they're doubling down and are going to continue to be focused on this. Um, nascent attempts to address moral ha hazard, they've been updating the, the shareholding rules of banks. So, um, you know, all this stuff is connected. You will have seen, uh, you know, a lot of the big Chinese companies on Bangwanda getting slapped down for, for spending too much abroad, engaging in illegal behavior. Those companies were all, also major shareholders of some of the smaller banks, and they were using those as basically piggy banks to, to use the bank that they own to lend themselves money to finance whatever project they wanted. So the regulators are getting on top of that as well. This year also, again, shifting from just focusing on the banking system, we're now focusing more on SOE debt broadly, which is a, a, a big issue for the macro picture, which I think Gene's going to talk about a bit, and focusing more on local government debt. So there's a shifting and broadening nature to the regulatory space when it comes to the financial crackdown. Final piece here is on the personnel side. And I just want to caution here for a second that, again, to really hit home the point that, one, these are initial gains that need to keep going. Secondly, that regulators have the mix right. But before I say how well the regulators are doing the specific individuals, we do have to be conscious that these are, in, that these are people who can make mistakes. So any analysis of China that's, this is a relatively bullish analysis on China because I think the data bears that out currently. But any analysis that focuses on China that just says the regulators know what they're doing, you need to be skeptical of that because they, every regulator has shown a propensity for mistakes. We've seen it in China many times. So I just want to caveat that before going in and talking about the regulatory architecture a bit. First, this starts at the top. Like I said, Xi Jinping focused on financial risk. He sees the entire economy through the lens of national security. And, and so once his advisors were sort of able to convince him to do that, right? So he, he was focused in the past years on building the party, building the military, all these other things. His advisors suddenly said to him, basically in 2015 when there were a lot of turmoil in the, in the Chinese economy, listen, this is a legacy issue. This is a national security issue. You need to be focused on it. So he designated financial risk as a national security risk, and you see everyone get in line. He even has the Politburo studying financial risk, which you know, they're not anywhere near experts on any of this stuff, but having a broader set of people understand these issues uh, within the political system is hugely important for getting everyone on board. So some other key guys to think about. Liu He in DC starting tomorrow is the economics are. He's running the show. He's, there, there's basically three key re financial regulators that I'm going to talk about that you need to know. He's the strategist. He's sitting above it all. I sort of view him as a mini Xi Jinping. What I mean by that is Xi is famously a micromanager. He you know, literally signs off on every panda that's shipped out of China. Seems like a bit of a, a mundane task for a general secretary of the party, but he is involved in every piece. Liu He similarly will do the same thing for the economy. He's now become as the, the, the March government reshuffle, the vice premier in charge of the economy. So he has a broad portfolio. He's also important of a key new body, the FSDC, the Financial Stability and Development Commission, which I think, or excuse me, committee, the Financial Stability and Development, Financial Stability and Development Committee, <laughs> um, which is a key new body that I don't think anyone 
has focused on enough. This is basically a body that was created in June 2017 at the National Financial Work Conference with the express remit of getting all the regulators in the financial industry on board, all pulling in the same direction. That's happened. The other key part of the FSDC is that it's meant to effectively take China's financial resources and put them behind China's industrial policy. So that it's not just coordinating financial regulators or herding financial cats, as we say, but it's also um, making sure that China's key industrial policy goals are well-funded. That's, th that's um, puts a lot of heft behind China's industrial policy. If you want to get to know Liu's thinking, you need to know supply-side structural reform. He was the key architect of that. This, if you don't know supply-side stru structural reform, you don't know what's happening in China's economy. It's the overarching framework for economic policy. It has been since late 2015. You'll see decreasing leverage. I put financial in parentheses. Is one of the five key buckets of supply-side structural reform. So anytime you see a readout from the Chinese government that says supply-side structural reform, they are implicitly talking about deleveraging. A lot of people, when they see a statement from the government that doesn't explicitly say deleveraging, they say, well, they've stopped talking about deleveraging. That's not true. Every time they say either the three tough battles or um, supply-side structural reform, they are implicitly talking about deleveraging. Two other key guys, Yi Gong, new central bank governor. He's the operator, and I don't mean that as sort of like a man about town <laughs> operator. He literally does the operations. He's running the day-to-day -day, um, operations of the bank, uh, very technocratic, replaced Zhou Xiaochuan after 15 years at the head of the central bank, and really has this macro prudential remit. He's focused on the day-to-day -day implementation of policy. And it's good to have one person individually focused on that. So you've got the strategist, Liu Ho above, the person implementing at the central bank, Yi Gong, and then you have this third person, Guo Shuqing, who I call the enforcer. Guo was the guy, basically, that wrote all the regulations that had a hand in or directed all the regulations that came out um, governing the financial sector over the past 15 months. He is now the head of the combined banking and insurance regulator, the CBIRC, and, and is a uh, vice governor of the central bank. So as he, with his central bank hat, he'll continue to write regulations for the financial sector. And it, with his CBIRC hat, he'll be the guy out there making sure that these regulations are enforced at an institution by institution basis. And I think this point here is one of the things that's really made China's financial policy quite powerful recently is they're taking both a top-down view through setting a macroprudential framework that has relatively tighter monetary policy, makes it more difficult to leverage broadly, but also that they've been going in institution by institution through the CBIRC, the, previously the banking regulator and the insurance regulator, now the combined regulator, to make sure that policy is getting implemented, again, um, with the backing of the discipline inspectors who make make sure that things happen. Um, last points here. This, this is all part, the CBIRC creation is all part of a huge government overhaul. This is a quick diorama of it. The most important thing you need to know is up there, number one, the National Security Commission, or excuse me, the National Supervisory Commission was created as a part of this process. This is a brand new branch of government, okay? This is, people sometimes say this is like, you know, the creation of Homeland Security, the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11. No, it's like if you took the FBI and made it co-equal to the executive, 
the legislature and the judicial branch. This is a huge beast on par with the NPC um, and the state council. And its remit is to broaden and deepen the corruption crackdown. So it's not the, previously the corruption crackdown was about political correctness and malfeasance among party members. The NSC will now overlook all public officials in China. That includes school teachers, non-party non, uh, members, which means that they are going to be increasingly involved in uh, policy implementation going forward. Hopefully, last point, that will lead to more consistent regulatory enforcement. That's the best case scenario. Now, there, there, can, there will be you know, missteps along the way, but that's the intention of the government, and you know, we'll see if it plays out that way, but I think one thing that we do at Trivium is try to explain what the government's doing and what it's trying to do, and then we can debate what the outcomes will be. So, so this was a, a quick run-through, but I think, again, to sum up, the numbers show that we've made initial gains. The policy is wide-ranging and intense and is not going to stop, despite this debate about will they or won't they back off. And thirdly, there's actually a pretty, pretty good um, poli or pretty, pretty good group of policymakers that are working together with clear roles to continue to make this happen. I think with there, I'll wrap it up and hand it over to Jean. I'll just quickly, normally this works well in China. I don't know if it'll work as well in the US. These QR codes will let you download the presentation <laughs> or sign up for our daily email. So in China, that works really well, but I think maybe we're a little bit more behind on the mobile space <laughs> in the US. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. I think Andrew gives a uh, very nice uh, summary of how Beijing tackled uh, the mountain of debt, right? Uh, from the perspective of institutions, starting from banks, uh, products, the, uh, the wealth managed product, um, the, uh, um, the regulatory framework, and the personnel. Um, I just want to uh, make two additional comments. Can we switch the slides? Yeah, one is that uh, I'll add one thing to um, uh, Angel's comment on how they tackled uh, the debt. That is, uh, I want to make some explanation from the economic point of view. And then I also want to uh, address, uh, try to crack um, a puzzle or a conundrum as why there seems a disconnect between China's debt and the growth. Uh, yeah. Um, first, what Beijing tried to control is the debt-to-GDP ratio, right? If you look at it, look at the, you try to imagine the equation in your, in your, in your um, mind, is when you look at debt-to-GDP ratio, uh, the numerator is the debt, the size of the debt. The denominator is the nominal GDP. Remember, it's not a real GDP, it's the size of the nominal GDP, okay? So that basically is the real GDP growth and inflation. So that means uh, Beijing to tackle the size of the debt, the real growth, and inflation at the same time. Okay. I think they had very good success um, to reflate the economy, okay? because the high inflation, because you have the debt amounted way, right? If you have a um, de persistent deflation, uh, like in Japan for a long time, in China for 54 uh, months uh, in 2014 and 16, 
then you have the so-called um, the balance sheet recession or the debt uh, deflating uh, spiral downwards. So you have to reflate um, the economy. So I think that's uh, Andrew said. Um, that's why the so-called supply side economy is so important, right? They shut down uh, the steel mills, uh, literally dynamite coal mines uh, to cut back uh, capacity and squeeze up uh, the PPI. So th they did it. Um, that's something uh, um, uh, Tokyo was not able to do uh, with other economics. Then they have to maintain the real growth, right? Um, the, the real part. So that is why uh, they still have uh, a target of 6.5, uh, uh, around 6.5. Um, and that's why uh, even though uh, on paper, fiscal policies are pretty conservative, but I think there was a lot of uh, off-the-budget fiscal spending to uh, keep the, the real growth. Then the tough part is the numerator, the size of a debt itself. I think it's very difficult actually to bring back the debt. Which is, uh, as uh, Andrew said, you, can, you hope you still can grow the debt, but at a much slower pace. That's what they're doing right now. But I think um, uh, later on we can uh, talk about details uh, what are the difficulties in bringing in the size of the debt. So that's how they did from economics point of view, they take the three things at the same time. The second uh, comment I want to make is that um, uh, the seeming disconnect between the debt and the growth. I think people notice an important issue uh, because of uh, Rugoff, uh, Reinhardt, and IMF told us when you recover debt so quickly and there's a recipe for disaster, you should expect a crisis some year down the road, right? And we also, um, many people have the impression that China's growth debt field is fueled by the, uh, the very rapid growth in debt. But if, in fact, if one you line the two lines together, the, the, the growth of GDP and the growth of debt, seems there's a disconnect. That is, um, so in the past year and a half, we see uh, the debt growth is slowing down from high teens right now to the low teens. And the GDP growth is pretty steady, right? Uh, 6.8 for three quarters, between 6.7 and 6.9 for 13 quarters. Okay, pretty steady. Uh, so then people need to think, well, maybe we need to re-examine the connection between debt and the growth. And what explains such a disconnect? Um, I don't have the full answer. That's my uh, attempt. I try to see uh, the, um, the mix of the debt. Who are uh, using those uh, debts. So this uh, one chart uh, looks pretty messy. In fact, it's not that hard to uh, uh, explain. The, the size of the bubble is the liabilities of those uh, uh, industries. Okay? The largest one, the yellow bubble, is the utility power. So that's, of course, it's a highly levered uh, industry. They um, eat up a lot of debts. The horizontal axis is the uh, the, the liability over the asset, the, uh, the level of the leverage, okay? So um, the bubble on the right is a highly levered industry. It's a coal mine, steel mills, uh, uh, machineries, okay? And uh, which one is the least levered? The little dots to the left, like tobacco, right? Okay, they don't need a lot of capital. So this is the least levered industry. So. The vertical axis um, is the growth rate of the value added in 2017. That's a how much value they can generate in this industry. So you can see all the red dots are below zero. 
okay? So that means that sector like coal mines, uh, iron ore mines, now ferrous, because all the mining industries, okay? Because all mining industries, um, except the very top one, this is, this, uh, this are actually they are making equipment for mining industry, okay? But for the mining industry themselves, no matter which sector they are, uh, what kind of um, um, minerals they dig up, okay? The growth of their value added were negative, so destroying values. So it, it basically do not create a GDP at all, so destroying the GDP, okay? So the bubbles um, on the top, okay, there's the blue bubbles, okay, there's the medical equipments, uh, uh, the instruments, uh, special purpose equipments, okay, these are more specialized uh, machineries, okay, uh, autos, uh, communication equipments, these are the company like CTE and Huawei, okay, and the machineries. They are generating um, the GDP growth, also called value added, at about low things, uh, in, in double digits. Okay. So that's the difference between those sectors. Okay, now you see uh, the rapid growth of the debt, right? Uh, in the, for all the decade from 2005 to 2015, okay? Uh, the leverage of industry are growing at the double digits, especially for mining, okay? Then in the past two years, in 2016, 17, okay, um, the leverage of the mining and also so-called energy intensive upstream material sector, like, like a steel, uh, a ferrous metal, they dropped almost zero, okay, see, because they, uh, the, the, basically the growth of the leverage, okay, dropped to zero, so they're not expanding anymore in terms of like, uh, the debt that they borrow. But at the same time, for the more advanced manufacturing, okay, the, the blue bubble we saw in the previous chart, okay, um, they can, um, they still borrow, but they're much slower pace, but still borrow at about 10% uh, year over year pace. So what does that mean? That means that in that, the bad decade from 2005 to 2015, large amount of debt was, okay, was eaten up by this not so productive sectors. So debt rising very rapidly, you do not see the rise of GDP. But in the past two years, okay, they okay, stopped eating um, those debts, but then it's the more productive sectors are borrowing. So even though the debt growth rate is slowing, but uh, we do not see a slowdown of the, the activities of the GDP growth or value added. So I think that's my attempt try to solve this puzzle. Okay. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Um, wow, <laughs> a lot of data um, and a lot of good insight. Um, and uh, I think it's abundantly clear from your respective presentations, this is a complex problem. Um, and, and we've got a, a, a lot to work through and I know um, Andrew, you and I have spoken many times about the frustration sometimes of um, trying to explain to people, you know, that it is a long-term problem without sounding like you're making excuses, basically, for, um, for the system. So um, I'm going to, we would definitely want to get our audience involved, so I'm going to ask you guys kind of, sort of uh, speed rounds of, of questions here, so if you would sort of uh, keep your answers uh, tight, that would be most appreciated. Um, let's kind of touch on the, the different areas. Uh, I think the first uh, thought you had, which I totally agree with, is this idea of, you know, 
the first order of business here is to try to understand the policy direction. We're not making a verdict on whether they'll be successful or not. We're simply trying to decide where are they going, right? Um, and I think it's fair to say that in your guys' newsletter, you have been continually sort of saying, look, there's a message out there that because growth is slowing and because of the trade tensions with the US, these guys are going to turn to stimulus again, like the bad old days. We don't see it that way. Uh, most recently, you guys were talking about the, the Politburo meeting, for example, and the message about domestic demand and so on. Um, why don't you expand on that a little bit for our audience and give us uh, your sense? Because I think it is somewhat um, contrarian to say the broad view in markets, for example. And how do you put it in the context, your view of recent actions like the triple R cut, like the delay of these new regulations on some of the asset management companies and so on, um, which would seem to suggest the opposite? Sure. Uh, well. You know, first of all, people can be forgiven for expecting stimulus. You, you know, we haven't had a massive stimulus since you know '09, but there have been multiple mini stimuli since that time. So you know, it's it's understandable to think, oh, they're going to go back to the well. They've done it so many times. But we do really think that this time is different, mainly because everything we've seen over the past year and a half. Why would they about face on all these hard-won gains they've made over the past 15 months? It just doesn't make sense. Secondly, what we've heard from and the system now is even more top down than it, you know, driven top down driven than it has been, you know, definitely since pre twenty twelve, but even even more so it seems every day. And so Xi Jinping himself is clearly committed to this program of de-risking, sees as I said, financial risk as a national security risk. When it comes to the Politburo readout itself, some quick background is the most recent Politburo readout used a phrase, we need to appropriately expand domestic demand. And that in the past has been a phrase that often signaled that stimulus was coming. And so markets took that and said, okay, they're going back to the well. But what we did is we just went and we looked back at all the economic readouts of the Politburo since 2011, and we found that that phrase under Xi Jinping has really not been used in that way. In the who win era, it was used to say stimulus is coming. The last time that exact phrase was used was in late 2013. We didn't see any stimulus then. We actually, the next time you saw stimulus was a whole year later. They mentioned domestic demand in, um, in, in early 2014, but not about expanding it. So the past couple of times they've even used the phrase was not followed by stimulus. So we can see a shifting of what that demand means, or excuse me, what that phrase means. And then additionally, They've basically just been using a different term. They've been, over the past couple of years, they've been talking about expanding aggregate demand. And that means the overall economy, right? And the reason they went back to domestic demand is because of this US-China stuff. They said, well, if, if we have a big external problem, we're gonna focus on the domestic economy and make sure that is still growing. Right. And I think rightly so. So if you, if you look at the history of the phraseology over the past several years, it's pretty clear that what they mean is, we're not going to actively stimulate, but if an external factor, U.S.-China relation, causes a significant disruption in our macroeconomy, of course we're going to have to react to that. So it's not a proactive stance; mm -hmm. uh, it's more of a reactive. And, and on the, you know, the other, you know, people kind of use that and then backed out a, a narrative to support it, including the triple triple R cut. And again. The PBOC, when they cut the triple R, most recently said exactly said this is going to put a trillion and a half RMB into the system. We've got a trillion RMB 
of a different type of fund expiring in a couple of months. Right. So we're trying to basically change the maturity mm -hmm. structure of, of liquidity in China. Right. They said that clear as day. I don't have any reason to suspect they're lying to us. If they wanted to, if they wanted to stimulate, they, they there's no reason to to be you know yeah. circum, circuitous about. So stimulus by stealth, in exactly. other words, yeah. I yeah. mean, so again, reading reading uh, a close reading of the documents from the Politburo doesn't make the case, and you know, taking the PBOC at its word. If you don't take the PBOC at its word, then I guess you could argue they're stimulated by stealth. Okay. Last night, they uh, over some MF that the exact amount was left and not covered by the Chirac cuts. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. also, uh, 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 another thing to note is that they didn't move the interest rate of MF. Yeah. Um, you said something during your presentation, Andrew, that I thought was very interesting, which is this notion of um, there have been a few instances now. I think it's fair to say that during the Hu Jintao uh, period, the problem may have been um, the one over the centuries, which is this notion that you know the emperor is far and the mountains are high. The localities just do what they want. Basically, they they nod obeisance, but then they you know do their own thing on the ground. Um, I think we can argue that with Xi's concentration of power and so on, um, there's a risk actually that now we're in a different space, which is that they're so keen to not to be out of line with the central directive that even when the conditions on the ground tell them it's bad policy, they do it anyway. You mentioned the conversion from coal to natural gas heating. I would argue um, the, uh, let's call it, pogrom of migrants in Beijing probably would have fallen into this category. There's been a lot of complaining about um, Tsai Chi, the, the, the Beijing um, party chief. Um, However, I would argue that you know those are embarrassing. There may be PR gaps. Um, obviously, no fun for the people who were sitting out in the cold. You know that's definitely uh, the case. But in this space, this risk could really do damage. Um, and there is increasingly, I think, especially with Xi Jinping's extension of his tenure, theoretically and so on, this idea of we're now in a policy echo chamber where no one can tell the emperor he has no clothes, um, and this is a real risk. Uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, I think uh, this is a real risk for the financial sector. I will say they have been, despite the financial regulatory storm, they've been doing it still sort of with kid gloves. In fact, when they rolled out all these policies, they had a specific phrase called the risk of de-risking. <laughs> so they, they were quite aware that the policies they were introducing were creating new risks that they also had to be mindful of. And I think um, that you know, again, you don't want to say that just because the regulators are aware of a problem, they'll definitely um, address it. But when when Chinese regulators are proactive, they tend to be much better, right? It's when they're reactive that mm. Mm. they're just putting out fires and policy goes haywire. So they've been more proactive on the financial side. In terms of the overall speaking truth to power, I see a couple of things. One, I see that as a, a long-term risk for sure. I would say that so far, the system has shown the ability to self-correct both with the two examples we talked about. The migrants, they corrected a little bit late, but Tsai Chi got a lot of heat for that with Beijing uh, party chief. And with the coal to ga gas switch. So the most recent documents that have come out and the Ministry of Ecolo Ecology and Environment, uh, brand new set up in the March <laughs> government restructuring. I hate when um, they do that. Exactly. <laughs> um, the MEP, that was an easy one. Yeah. Um, but they have explicitly said, we need to really focus on boosting natural gas uh, 
supply and consumption at the expense of coal, and explicitly said, without disrupting people's lives. I right. think that's a pretty straightforward acknowledgement. We messed it up the first time. And so I think at present, the way we read it is that there's still a mechanism, whether it's through you know hearing what's happening on the street or an internal process, that the system can self-correct. But we do need to be watch for signs that that system is breaking down. I'd argue, you know, with she, you know, presumably staying on for a long time, that problem will get worse over time. And mm. it's something we need to sort of, if next time this happens, if there's not a self or a slower self-correct or not a self-correct. Then we're starting to see the cracks. As we see it now, there's still some. And I think your point is correct about um, crisis responses when they tend to <laughs> suffer, in that the agility um, right. is generally um, not there. Gene, any um, any comments on that? Yeah, deleveraging hard thing to do, right? Uh, we have seen so many uh, disasters in, and uh, in the other economies. Uh, Beijing knows this very well. Um, and the, there were some accidents uh, in the past few years. Uh, for example, uh, in 2014, 15, they tried to um, support the equity market to allow the equity market to help the corporate to deleverage. De and we thought uh, then they allowed the margin trading um, went out of control. They had market, uh, stock market crash by 40% in 2015, 2016. Um, then uh, when PBOC um, tightened the, uh, the monetary condition, uh, you, they triggered a bond sell-off in the, the fourth quarter of 2016. Uh, in 2017, uh, in fact, I think there were a lot of small banks uh, went under, but the, something we do not, uh, we're not able to see from outside because uh, uh, either PBOC or large bank can throw them a lifeline, mm. keep them afloat. But, but in fact, a lot of, I think, uh, rural credit unions are basically uh, bankrupt. So that's why they uh, uh, rely so much on the interbank borrowing, as you uh, demonstrated. And in this year, what we saw is the uh, increased um, default of a copper bonds. So every year when you flavor, right, um, that's because when you start to tighten uh, uh, the liquidity, try to delever the system, that's inevitable you will see those uh, things happen. Uh, that's like, like when you try to defuse a lot of, a lot of time bombs, uh, you almost inevitably set off some bombs. They know this very well. Mm. So that's why for them, what's more important than the GDP growth is to contain systemic risk. Okay, you may allow um, the localized um, um, accident that's to happen in the equity market, bond market, uh, but uh, you cannot allow a bank run. Uh, you cannot allow a total collapse of a wealth management uh, a product. So that's what they try to do. So they do this uh, by do two things. First is that they adjust policy uh, very uh, quickly. So for example, they squeeze up, uh, up the monetary condition in 2016, move up the raise in 2017. Now they cut triple R. Uh, so that uh, uh, basically allowed small banks get more liquidity uh, to avoid uh, uh, such a systemic uh, event. Um, the other thing is uh, very interesting is that uh, even though adjusting policy very quickly, they deny uh, this is a policy directional adjustment. Mm. Okay? So I don't, you try to recall, uh, if you try to read a PBS press conference, uh, for example, uh, in 2016, 17, when they move up the rates, okay, move up MR rates, repo rates, they didn't call them interest rate hike. They said, well, the market rates is up, we have to follow the rate uh, to right. the market level. Right. But of course, if you didn't squeeze the liquidity level, the market <laughs> rates will not go up, right? Um, 
At this time, even the capture part says, no, this is not easy. We just to try to, uh, uh, to uh, swap out uh, the MIF. Yes, it did swap MIF, but at the same time, you see the 10-year bond yield uh, came down uh, by uh, almost uh, 40, 50 uh, basis points. Now, the reason they, when they tightened, uh, PBS was very shy to deny the tighten policy, and now they come to rescue, they also deny the come to rescue is that uh, they didn't want to take the blame. When you tighten policy, uh, set up the time bombs, you, you get bond sell-off, or uh, the local banks uh, when under, they do not want to take the blame. So they, they deny this policy tightening. And, that, and when they try to uh, throw out the lifelines, they also do not want to spook the market. We uh, ease uh, the condition to save the financial system. So that's why uh, it's very difficult uh, for uh, people to, uh, uh, for the observer to understand really what's going on. So uh, in this case, uh, I think you're right. Uh, probably the words probably do not matter that much. You have to watch what they are doing right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, please. And, one other thing they have working for in their favor in this sector, in my view, is the nature of the structure of the banking system. And that's something I've kind of started to talk about a bit. But basically, um, as I said, 50% of the banking system is in these eight big behemoth mm -hmm. state-owned institutions. Mm -hmm. The rest is broken up into tiny little pieces. Mm -hmm. the, literally, the biggest bank is 2% is of system assets. And that's pretty big. But most of them are like a quarter of one percent, so they're right. tiny, tiny. And they tend to operate very localized financial ecosystems. So if a city commercial bank, one of these small banks blows up, they're much easier to firewall from the rest of the system. And so, you know, because you know, they're owned by the local SOEs, typically, mm -hmm. they loan to the local <laughs> SOEs, they don't even have the remit to um, you know, loan outside of their province, so it really is a financial ecosystem. So if you have this tiny piece of the system that blows up, you know, a tree falls in the woods, do we all hear it, right? Yeah. So it, the, the contagion aspects right. of the financial system are not as well developed hmm. as they are in other banking systems. That's a great and point. I think that's a key, key to understand. The whole reason, obviously, that I think that we focus on the interbank market is problems in the U.S. interbank market were proximate cause for mm -hmm. global financial crisis. Hmm. So people look at China and say, we see the parallels, we worry about the interbank market. But that... Um, those, those less well-developed contagion mechanisms and the bro that are broken up into very tiny pieces, mm -hmm. I think also gives them a little bit more Question. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Um, uh, I'm a political scientist uh, who tries my best to fake economics. Uh, you guys are real economists, uh, so let's um, go a little bit more technical for a moment. Um, if we think about um, what happened earlier in time with uh, China's effort uh, to get into the SDR basket, the special drawing rights, um, and uh, obviously it was a bit controversial. I think there's a general sense that China did very little um, in order to get it. Um, and yet in China, there was, I think, a serious debate that suggested we did too much uh, in terms of capital account opening overcorrection and the problems that then came um, that ensued after that. So that was one kind of big issue. Um, but we're about to have another one, which is their interest, entry into MSCI. Um, and uh, that's going to be happening here very, very soon, June 1st, I, I believe. Um, what's your sense of what the impact of, of that will be? You know, there's sort of, uh, I think, two arguments that are out there, and, and they're not mutually exclusive. One is that there's a potential with this move 
to that this might actually create some benefits for better corporate governance structures and so on, and having sort of more people watching <laughs> the situation who aren't Chinese. The other, of course, is that all of our portfolios will now be more dependent upon A-share performance, and perhaps that means we won't want to rock the boat. Um, do you have a sense of that? And especially, I think, in the context of this broader U.S.-China situation and the whole discussion about whether they're being bad actors and, and, and so on. Well, I, you know, Gene will have, I think, some real insights on this because I think his, his clients are the ones that are managing the money that, are, that will be going in. I think, you know, so first it's important to understand that the MSCI inclusion is a s slow and phased process. So it's gonna, the inclusion is going to be tiny percentage-wise, and it's going to happen, I think, over the course of three years initially and then five to seven years after that. So it's a very slow process. Um, the Chinese... I think, uh, from their perspective, are very actually quite confident in sp finally starting to open the financial sector this year. Part of the reason is that uh, uh, for that is because they've built up their big behemoths, their big banks, their big stock uh, brokers, their all their big you know financial institutions are so dominant mm. that foreign companies can't really compete for yeah. market share. And it's funny because when they talk about it, they say that they say, well, different institutions have different comparative advantages. Our institutions are huge, i.e., they're going to have all the market share. They will crush you. <laughs> yeah. Foreign institutions are better at cross-border flows, governance. So I think, you know, among the reformers in the system, there is a clear desire to help improve governance. I think, you know, it's going to be one of those. Just be, where, just because the door is opening to MSCI, does not mean MSCI can close that door. And right. I actually, I, I wish that MSCI would have would have waited a bit because they really had a. You know, unlike the IMF, who had more political decisions. Yeah, they had some leverage. They did, and, and it was the Gene's clients who were saying, we're not sure we're ready for this. Mm -hmm. Now, over the long term, yes, they want to get into China, mm -hmm. but they want the rules of the road clearly yep. delineated. They want to know they can get their money out when they want. And so, you know, I think at this early stage, it's difficult to tell, but I think, uh, you know, whether it's going to be good or bad, but the key point, I guess, just because the door is open doesn't mean it can't close, and this is going to be such a staged, slow process because the people who are actually putting, mm -hmm. you know, making risk decisions are not going to yeah. want to go in headlong. Makes sense. Yeah, I think it's uh, important to um, uh, know there's a difference between the financial s sector opening and the financial account opening. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Because pe people are going to confuse. Because, well, in the past few years, uh, Beijing was able to control the currency uh, depreciation and um, able to finance uh, the uh, the seems insatiable appetite for debt domestically because they were high saving and you have capital control. You are not, uh, um, even the, the uh, loss of one billion reserve, but the one billion reserve just moved from um, uh, the safe to the household to corporates. And um, still, uh, you still have a, uh, a lot of asset on your balance sheet so you can finance the domestic debt. Um, if you completely open your capital account, then it will be much harder to. Um, manage your currency, much harder to finance uh, domestic debt. Um, and then we read the news, uh, China's almost have a, almost like a, a big ban. They opened the bond market completely, uh, opened the financial sector uh, to almost everyone, uh, even uh, hedge funds these days. Uh, then the key is that um, this opening is not a kept account opening. Mm -hmm. So what they did is that uh, they 
allow foreign financial institutions, now they can set up woofies. Instead of a joint venture, you can increase uh, your uh, sharehold, um, uh, uh, your stake uh, to 51%. This is what Nomura did. Nomura just applied for another joint venture to have 51% uh, share. And then the cap will be raised uh, in three years' time uh, to 100%, 100%. And for certain sectors, they can now, uh, especially for uh, the fund managers, you can apply Wolf to wholly owned, uh, wholly owned uh, foreign enterprises. That means a 100%, 100 uh, stake. Um, then they open a payment market, a credit rating market. So I, I can give you one good example. You can understand uh, the distinction between uh, the sector opening and uh, account opening. So for example, so uh, the mutual fund companies um, uh, in, in the West, now they can set up a, a company uh, in Shanghai, uh, apply a license called a private fund management then you can sell your product to the qualified investors okay, who have about one million RMB assets uh, with certain income. Okay. But you raise money locally. Okay. You manage money locally in Asia, the local bond market. And there's not a penny or the leave uh, China, not a penny comes in. So for those kind of operations, still pretty, pretty closed. You just allow the foreign players coming to the local market. But as Andrew said, right now, the local institution dominates the market. Uh, the foreign banks, foreign fund manager, foreign uh, the holding of uh, the local bonds only less than 2%. They can allow the more foreign players in the local market. And at the same time, the increased competition things are good for the local market. In terms of capital account, Okay. There are some opening measures, but it's all under uh, all kind of a connections and the QV QD scheme. So you can raise the quota for QV and QD, but still there's a quota. There's still a license uh, scheme there, um, and also the policy making Beijing they love the connections. Okay, they, now you have a Hong Kong Shanghai connect and so for stock, uh, Hong Kong Shenzhen connect for stock. There's a bond connect. Uh, there's a connect for, for London for FX okay. trading. You can, mm -hmm. If you're a London FX trader, you can trade uh, RMB through the connect. And I think the London uh, Shanghai stock connect will be launched this year. Yeah. Yeah. The reason they like the connect is that uh, even though allowed the money say, flow from Shanghai to Hong Kong or London to buy stocks, but the moment you liquidate your position, the money come back to yeah. Shanghai instantaneously. Bad. Okay. There's no leakage. It's completely encoded system. So they still, still have a maximum control over the system. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, great. Um, well, that's, uh, I, I said we would largely steer clear, but let's address the elephant in the room. And I think we can do it through um, something you raised, Andrew, in your opening, which I think is critical. When I look at the situation and what we've just now been discussing, they have this massive domestic agenda uh, that they're keen to move on with. And it is deleveraging to your point about Xi Jinping's instruction at the first meeting of the now upgraded uh, commission, which used to be the financial and economic leading group, where my read of it was basically he was saying, for all of you in our system who thought that we were just playing intra-bank games here in Beijing, you know, SOEs, local governments, we are coming after you, you're next. Um, and certainly Egong, when he was here for the IMF meetings, he, from my perspective, he gave a laundry list of all the things he'd like to be doing, <laughs> but he can't be doing because his export picture is unclear, and that's you know letting money out and you know so on, so on, so on. Um, so uh, again, from my uh, layperson's perspective, that sounds like leverage uh, to me for the U.S. Um, in in this sort of trade situation. 
Um, but it's also, I think, fair to say that China views this uh, situation with the U.S. more as an inconvenience or a headache than maybe a potential death blow or you know, some of the other things that, that have been suggested. So how do you tie those pieces together from your point of view? Yeah, well, I mean, we've heard the regulators saying this to, you know, using this as an excuse even to European companies, mm -hmm. SAFE in particular, the, F, the foreign exchange regulators saying, listen, we'd love to make more, more moves on the capital account, but we just can't right now because we've got this U.S. thing happening. Uh, I think to an extent that it is used as an excuse, mm -hmm. uh, but, but also because it's, it is kind of an, a more of an irritant. Like, they, they, are much less reliant on um, their external on exports mm -hmm. uh, than they were in the past. I, it's my personal view that if we even if we do get a full blown trade war, it will not play out really macroeconomically. It will play out more on company balance sheets. Uh, and I think you know that the, basically a trade war is an exercise in whose population is willing to. Uh, Eat the bitter, as exactly. they like to say. <laughs> Except the most pain. And uh, I mean, in terms of getting everybody on board, Ch China wins that battle. Mm -hmm. In terms of you know nationalism and kind of eating the bitter, um, I think you know U.S. trade, China trade war kicks off in earnest. The Chinese, to some extent, are betting on the U.S. consumer making more stink than the, the Chinese uh, population, and that's a big mm -hmm. you know, difference. I want to make a comment. Yeah, I think it's exactly uh, if you want, uh, try to convince Beijing to do the right things, it's much more effective to argue from the leverage debt perspective rather than from the current account or trade account perspective. Because mm -hmm. even for the US, uh, the overall, even the, the bilateral trade uh, deficit is very large. The overall trade deficit for the US right now, relative GDP, is smaller than 10 years ago. And for China, um, because the GDP had grown so much, so the, look at the, the bilateral trade surplus uh, against U.S. relative GDP, it's not a big deal for China. And uh, then if you look at the multilateral uh, overall um, uh, current account um, uh, um, surplus, so only 1.4% of GDP last year, this first quarter, just a few days ago, we had the data, right? First quarter, China again, for the first time, had a current kind of deficit in 20 years uh, because the, the, the deficit in the service account is so large and the uh, surplus uh, in the goods account becomes smaller. It's the first time in 20 years. So that's why uh, Beijing will never accept an argument that we exported too much and uh, so that we can ring our export, uh, make our current surplus smaller. Well, we have current uh, account deficit in, in the first quarter. So that's a much harder argument to win. Um, uh, over Beijing. But if you look argue from the debt leverage perspective, uh, we already have some, um, um, uh, um, some success. Uh, the, uh, the supply side reform restraint in the steel sector is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. So when they first mentioned uh, supply side reform, the cutback path in steel in the coast in, in 2015, they didn't do much in 2016, they did it in earnest in 2017. There are three objectives behind this. One is that, as I uh, showed in the chart, they um, gobble up a lot of debt without doing much uh, in terms of growth. Uh, they are highly polluting, and uh, you if you want to clean the air in Beijing, you have to shut down the uh, steel mills. And the third, uh, they didn't say that much, but it's also one of our objectives uh, when they, in mind is to cut our capacity try to head off uh, the, uh, the trade conflict with the U.S. because mm -hmm. steel, steel sector is such an uh, 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 contentious uh, issue. Right. Two other 
quick points on that. The reason that China had the current account deficit is because so many Chinese people travel to right. the U.S. Right. And that's actually it. They, China buys more tourism services from the U.S. than they do any other good. It right. makes agriculture look like peanuts. Right. And so no that's pun actually, intended. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's also a lever that they have before, which they have used before with the likes of Taiwan. South Korea and Taiwan. So if they, if, you know, and the, the nice thing about that, nice thing from China's side, they don't even have to make that policy. Chinese right. people will stop traveling right. to the U.S. It's easy to shift your demand to mm -hmm. Europe or other places. So, you know, that's a piece in this that I don't think has been well looked at. Mm -hmm. The other thing is the one thing that China is worried about in this whole thing is technology. Mm -hmm. This is the ZTE case between Big deal. commerce and, and, and the Chinese company ZTE. That's where the game is yeah. in terms of the Chinese regulators thinking. That they are concerned, mm -hmm. right? They mm -hmm. and and it's if anything, they've been doubled down on their push to become, you know, technology mm -hmm. independent. But if there's a weakness, that's it, mm -hmm. and that's where the U.S. Yeah, and I think uh, to your point, you know, certainly, although it perhaps shouldn't have been a surprise, you know, there certainly seemed to be people in Beijing who were, after watching that action take place, saying, well, I guess the U.S. still is kind of big. They can snap their fingers and Definitely. destroy our company. Exactly. Um, and so that's quite interesting. Um, okay, speed round. I want to cover structure and people, since those were both big pieces of your presentation. Um, as you mentioned, we, knew, we have this new organization, the Financial Stability Development Committee. Um, obviously, it looks... <laughs> <laughs> Got lucky. Um, uh, obviously, it looks very interesting. Uh, it's going to be powerful because Leo is heading it, and the staffing, you know, would suggest it's going to be powerful. And clearly, it's being put in an important role. Um, some years ago, in 2013, we had the creation of another um, new thing, the National Security Commission. Um, and there was lots of discussion at the time. This is massive, and it had always been discussed inside the system, and they've finally done it, and it's going to be this big thing. Nobody has any idea what this thing does day to day, or at least those of us on the outside um, don't. So how does FSDC avoid that risk? Um, and how real do you think this thing's going to be? And if you have a thought, is this a stepping stone to the super regulator that's often been put off? Yeah, I don't know that's necessarily a step to the, the super regulator. I think a lot of the things that happened in the government reorg were, and as often happens you know, in the Chinese system, were sort of canonizing things that were already in train anyway, right? So the regulators were already pulling in the same direction. They didn't really need the FSDC to do that. I think it's more, you know, in political systems all the time. You don't, you often don't have um, a position that sort of looks across the silos. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, this is a relatively nimble body mm -hmm. that is meant to look across the silos. Mm -hmm. And so, as you say, the staff, it's, I mean, this thing within a month had office operations, had staffing, had, you know, and is, is run by the most important uh, economic policymaker in China. So I think it's going to have juice. And I think it, again, just kind of canonizes two things. One, getting everybody on the same page, which is already happening. But also that piece that I was talking about, of China now is obsessed with, so they've got their industrial policy, that's good, you know, uh, made in China 2025, all that stuff. They need to get the resources to those projects, right? right? So they've got, you know, the semiconductor, the, mm -hmm. the IC, IT, IC fund that, that funds that piece of it. Mm -hmm. And this is meant to make sure that's happening right. sort of across the system. In an organized way, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Jane, anything on that? Yeah, I think there were policy failures in the past. Two good examples uh, were the um, uh, margin trading in, in the eight years in 2014-15 and then the crash. 
And the second example is the, the, uh, the RMB devaluation uh, right after market crash. So back then, uh, the regulator really point finger at each other. So for example, CSRC was so all the money uh, in the market chain came from banks. If you didn't watch the banks very well, then CBRC can point finger back. So yeah, the, the banks provide us loans, but uh, you should know every penny goes through a broken account, right? Um, <laughs> so right now, uh, I think what really matters not only the uh, organizing of the institution itself, but also the personnel arrangements. So back then, you can see um, the financial stability was in the hands of three people. Right? This uh, Liu He back then was head of Ecofin Leading Group, uh, the vice premier in charge of financial affairs of Vice Premier Ma Kai, who was not really, really uh, uh, that well uh, covered in finance. And then uh, uh, Governor Zhou Xiaotuan, he chaired the Joint Commission of the uh, One Bank Three Commissions. Um, now we can see the lot of change. First, all the three roles right now is in the hand of one person, Liu He. That's one. And second, uh, even um, even among the working staffs, um, uh, they are very intertwined. I'll give you a few examples. So, for example. Um, the Office of the Financial Stability Committee, okay, in fact, is in the PBOC. Even <laughs> the head by Mr. Liu He, uh, as far as premier, that office in PBOC. Um, then uh, the head of a banking regulator is in, as the, uh, the party boss at the PBOC. Uh, a lot of, um, if you look at the senior staff of CSRC, stock regulator, it's basically they're all uh, PBOC folks, right? They all work in the PBOC uh, in the, in the uh, because they all came from PBOC in the past two years. Okay. Um, then even for the Ecofin leading group, because they was so short of staff um, uh, in the past few years, basically a lot of counties uh, from the banking regulator, CBRC and the PBOC, they have a lot of division chiefs, uh, deputy director of the departments, organized counties into the Ecofin leading group. So I think in this case, um, these, uh, Entities right now is very much intertwined. They talk to each other very well. Great. Um, well, obviously, Leo Ha is the man, <laughs> and he's a superstar. There's no question about that. Very thoughtful. Um, it's also pretty clear, though, that he has a state planning background, um, not necessarily a financial one, but he seems to be surrounding himself with smart people who do. Um, but if there's a, a knock, I guess you could say, on him, it is that he's a bit of an academic. Uh, he's always been a behind the scenes guy. And now he's a Politburo member, so he's in a knife fighting um, role, which he's not used to, and a policy execution role, which he's also not used to. Um, fair? I think that's right. I mean, I think your characterization of him is important. 